0: If you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Well, around 1736 in England, a sniffling 11-year-old was sent out to sea with his harsh father on a slave ship uh, going to West Africa. Years later, ironically, this man would become a slave and servant himself to a harsh, very harsh slave trader. He was later rescued by an English captain and then later went back to England to then captain his own slave ships for many years. But after a radical conversion to Christianity, this man eventually gave up the slave trade in deep remorse and regret and repentance and became a preacher and pastor for a couple more decades before his death. He became a prominent abolitionist and and campaigned endlessly to end the slave trade in England. And around 1807, the year of this man's death, John Newton, the writer of many famous hymns, including Amazing Grace, saw the act passed to abolish slavery in England. I bring this up because if there ever was an illustration of the two drastic distinctions of the before and after pursuits of a sinner that is then saved, John Newton is is a pretty compelling one. The life transformation didn't happen overnight, if you read more about his story, that there was indeed a gradual process of dying to the flesh in the old nature and living in the new. Friends, all along in Peter's first letter, we see this distinction in believers as those born again to this living hope. Peter continues to mark out the differences in the process by which this all happens, the gospel, the gospel itself of Jesus Christ. Three times already, Peter outlined what Christ has done had done for his people on the cross and thereby saving us and introducing us to the new heart and the new pattern of living, even in the midst of suffering for doing what is good, as we've been hearing about, persevering as is the test of the genuineness of your faith, and living in a dark, sinful world as we await our true homeland as exiles and sojourners on this earth. As you may recall, the call to believers is not to hide away, not to run and hide away and simply wait for heaven someday, but to live as one beholden to Christ in front of a watching world. And so the passage today then directs our attention to what I call the title of today's sermon, Gospel-Centered Living or Gospel-Centered Pursuits or Gospel-Centered New Affections. And the passage shows us four ways that can mark gospel-centered living. And I'm gonna say them now, list them with four headings that I will repeat throughout the sermon. Number one, people who are armed with right thinking. Number two, people who adhere to the one true goal. People who, number three, leave the old ways behind. And then finally, number four, people who treasure the preached gospel of Christ. Those four headings represent what marks gospel-centered living. And so if you have your Bibles open, we come to verse 1 for our first heading, people who are armed with right thinking. Verse 1 says again, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So if you see there in verse 1 for context's sake the since therefore introduction refers to 1 Peter 3:18 from last week's text. I'll read that again for Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring to bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. And so when we refer to uh, what we refer to this as one of the main proof texts for what is called penal substitutionary atonement that Christ paid the penalty for our sins once for all with the death on the cross. As you join us again, Lord willing, this Friday, we will remember that in holy reverence, this once for all death together as a body. What happened there? He incurred the just wrath of God in our stead. That's the substitution, the righteous for the unrighteous. And that atoning sacrifice, that payment reconciled us, redeemed us back to God. And then after he was put to death in the flesh, verse 18 says, was buried and in in the grave for three days, but then made alive in the spirit, meaning he was then resurrected. And so since our Savior accomplished all of that on our behalf as he suffered in the flesh, Peter is saying, then the text says in verse 1, okay, because of all that, arm yourselves then arm yourselves with that same way of thinking. That's his exhortation to the scattered Christians across modern day Turkey. Now to arm oneself is of course drawn from a military illusion, to be, prepared, to be prepared for battle even if that's waiting, armed all throughout the night. And an illusion that is also used by the Apostle Paul in several passages, you know this, Ephesians chapter six. To put on the armor of God in 1 Thessalonians five also. That our life as exiles in, is a spiritual journey, filled with spiritual battles, and we need to stand ready and prepared, spiritually armed, is what Peter is saying. And so in context of this larger passage, Peter is exhorting believers to be prepared in the same understanding and thinking Christ had. Well, what does he mention, why is he mentioning that? Is that Christ in his mind was ready to suffer, that kind of thinking. Now, as we discussed last week, suffering will come according to the purposes and will of God in different and differing ways to all of us. Nobody knows what kind of suffering exactly what we will confront. But every Christian needs to be prepared for the spiritual road and journey ahead, that arming oneself mentality. And so this goes back to our overall theme of gospel-centered living. So much of what we hear today from so-called evangelists is that the Christian life will bring a life of comfort. Oh, all your problems will be solved and only good and nice things will come to, quote unquote, good people. But that's not what the Bible portrays. That's not the mentality that we need to arm ourselves with. Oh, the Christian life is taking up your cross and following Jesus. And as Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 verse 10 through 11, we are armed with a certain type of attitude that is summarized this way, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That was the life call of Paul, something that we aspire to. Oh, the power of his resurrection and that I may share in his sufferings. And about our current state, 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, meaning in our human bodies, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We find no confidence in the flesh, but confidence in the flesh in Christ alone, in the weapons that he has provided for us to battle in the spiritual realm. And so to live with the same way of thinking of Christ is to remember what Peter said in chapter 2 as the example Christ left us. With that mentality, then this is how Jesus lived. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued in trusting himself. To him who judges justly, because Christ was ready to what? He was ready to suffer. So do we have that mindset? Well, we certainly have access to the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2:16, but we had the mind of Christ through the Spirit of the Lord. And so it's easy for us to say, okay, I want to pursue this and to arm myself by the power of God's Spirit and to have the mind of Christ continually until we see him face to face. But we continue learning and conforming to the mind of Christ, as R.C. Sproul says, by saturating ourselves in his holy word. That's how you arm yourself with the same way of thinking. I love it when I hear members here at our church, at WBC, when they say, as I've been meditating on the scriptures, dot, 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 my mind has changed, you see, fill in the blank. I hear that often in my office, meeting up with you over a meal, or in our men's group, and I'm sure in our, our women's group that meets throughout the week, as I've been meditating and saturating my mind in the Word. Oh, that changes all my perspectives on all things related to the spiritual life. The point is, the arming oneself is an action. It's training. And that's why Peter uses that military illusion there. Arming oneself in the mind is not stagnant, aimless daydreaming and just hoping that we naturally just conform without processing in the mind this perspective of ready to live and follow Christ. Oh, we should be armed and ready to suffer. And that's why the last bit of verse 1 then makes more sense. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Because if you just read that as a proof text, and you just kind of uh, do that mystical thing where you open the Bible and you point to a verse and say, Okay, this is the verse for me. I hope you don't pick verse 1, because it can be rather confusing. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. But friends, that doesn't entail a sinlessness here on earth. But we are no longer under the mastery of sin is the context of all the New Testament writers. Those who suffer for doing good for the Lord's sake is proof that the person has died to sin is his meaning, even though we still battle with the remnant of sin still in us. Think of John Newton, the transformed, changed life one pursues by the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit is not simply accepted by those that were part of your life before Christ it's quite the opposite in people rejecting this new way of living i like what thomas schreiner writes on this quote those who commit themselves to suffer those who willingly endure scorn and mockery for their faith show that they have triumphed over sin again not that we are sinless here on earth but we are no longer mastered by sin because of christ and if you Choose this life of suffering, and if you suffer for doing what is good, that is proof positive of what has happened internally in the soul. As Peter wrote earlier in chapter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Amen. The Apostle John speaks to the same pattern in First John chapter 2. We read this earlier in our liturgy, in that assurance of forgiveness, where John says, if I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So then gospel-centered living then describes number one, people who are armed with right thinking, preparing for whatever suffering is to come. Now to the second heading, people who adhere to the one true goal, and that will be in verse two, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You know, because of the gospel, and after we are born again to a living hope, again in chapter one, we then are positioned to live for one singular goal for the rest of our lives, is what Peter is saying. This is the change, this is the transformation. Some of you guys, know I'm a huge, avid Chicago Blackhawks fan. Some of you guys don't know what that is. That's the professional ice hockey team in Chicago. And they had a really good marketing campaign years ago when they were perennial championship contenders. Their slogan was one goal. Just two words, it just said one goal. On billboards across the city, One goal was all that was written in big, bold letters, along with a picture of their logo or maybe one of their top players. But that was all that was needed to be said. And as a play on words relating to scoring goals, their organization's main goal was singular, to win the Stanley Cup trophy at the end of the year. Now, for this weary fan, from probably elementary days or junior high days, decades of seeing the Blackhawks lose every year pitifully. I was thrilled to see them achieve their one goal three times in six years, if I may boast. <laughs> but everyone in their organization knew of this slogan. All they would have to say to one another as they passed each other in the hallway, one goal, they understood that ethos, that pursuit, that one goal. For Peter and for the Christian, the one goal of every believer is what it says there in verse two, to live for the will of God. As our Westminster standards remind us, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Some of us who go to our men's group on Thursday nights can define the biblical phrase, the fear of the Lord as living for the will of God is a good summary. That is our one True goal. And in the language used there in verse 2, after we are regenerated, justified, adopted, and forgiven and liberated from sin's dominion over us, oh, then we endeavor to live the remainder of our lives in the flesh, Peter says, meaning in our human bodies, no longer pursuing carnal, sinful goals and passions, but only now for the will of God. Now, that doesn't mean we don't strive to get a promotion at work or get into a certain college or have fitness goals, or even New Year's resolutions. But the one overarching goal that directs and dictates the movement of our lives and our decisions is to live for the will of God and not for our sinful selves any longer. As I related to last week, when Peter was still thick-headed, hot-tempered Peter, 30 years before writing this letter when he was with Jesus on Earth, Peter didn't want Jesus to suffer and die. He wanted an earthly kingdom to be, to put them on the geopolitical map. He wanted to rule next to Jesus, not to suffer and die. But you see, 30 years ago, Peter was thinking for the self, for his own pursuits. But then as he was filled with the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, Peter could then make that radical shift to the one true goal. He could now finally see with spiritual eyes oh, I had all this backwards before in living for myself. It's the same for John Newton again. The previous goal of his life was of a slave trader and to make money off the lives of tortured souls. But then after meeting Christ, that goal dramatically shifted to gospel-centered living marked by living by this one true pursuit. And so the next time you see me or send me an email and you simply say one goal and leave it at that, I'll know what you're trying to say. I won't reply and say, "Uh, you just sent me a weird, mysterious kind of email. What what, what What did you mean? Did you want to meet for coffee? What is this one goal? And he said, no, it's because of that one goal that dictates our lives. And Robin, I just wanted to encourage you. We have one goal, pursue that. That's our Christian life slogan, if you could say it, put it that way. And if you say that to me, I'll completely understand about this one goal. So again, gospel-centered living involves, number one, people who are armed with right thinking. Number two, people who adhere to the one true goal. And now number three, people who leave the old ways behind. People who leave the old ways behind. If you look again in verse three through four, for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, or can be translated doing the will of the Gentiles living in uh, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Why should you live for the will of God? Peter grants some reasons. He says for, he uses that word for there. For you have already been saved from what had come before, what marked out your life before. Your previous sinful ways, why you were pagans. That's a, uh, you know, it could be literally translated as nations or pagans or heathens. Or Gentiles, even if they were Gentiles converted to Christianity, that was kind of a slang term for those that do not belong to God and live for their own passions and ways. The pagans, these unconverted Gentiles, lived all of the descriptors there in this reckless idolatrous way in the Greco-Roman world and culture. Scholars note that these terms refer, refer to sexual sins, of course but also just as general overall sinful living in rebellion. Many in the context of these festive group parties common to the pagan lifestyle then. That's why they had these drinking parties where orgies would happen, and people pursuing their sensualities and drunkenness. This marked their lives. Dan Doriani points out that lawless idolatry had something related to do with getting drunk while observing Roman holidays and worshipping their Roman deities. Now again I said last week at this point to this uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, there wasn't yet widespread persecution and martyrdom in the early church. It wasn't deemed evil or illegal at this point in the Roman world. Oh, but if you didn't participate in the cultural norms of the Greco-Roman world and the what the Roman Empire Portrayed all across that known world at that time, oh, you would, people would look sideways at you. I wonder what's wrong with you. Another point that makes theologians believe most of Peter's audience are converted Gentiles and not Jews because they once did participate in the Roman world this way. That is what marked them. But a good litmus test of gospel centered living, living is that you leave that old pattern behind. Paul, varies, Peter and Paul just speak the same language. Paul says in Romans 13, verse 13 and 14, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to this, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires Now, Peter understands that the temptations were probably still very much there for these Christians, but you're choosing to leave that life behind, even if the phone keeps buzzing. What do I mean by that? It's an illustration I picked up many years ago from a PCA pastor about an analogy for constant temptation to sin. He said, temptation is like a phone ringing off the hook constantly. And before you met Jesus Christ and were saved, Oh, we would pick up the phone whenever we wanted to without any remorse or hesitation. When the phone rang in that temptation, there was nothing to hinder us from saying, yes, hello. Because isn't that what sin is? Sin is what you want to do for yourself in rebellion in God's ways, is the language there in verse three. The will of the Gentiles, what they want to do. That's sin in response to temptation. But this pastor was saying about this analogy once you're converted to christ oh the phone doesn't just magically stop it keeps ringing it keeps on going but now we simply have the power not to pick up it doesn't mean we never pick up anymore but we pick up less and less by the power and grace of god it's that pursuit of saying god i want to leave the old behind gospel Center living, friends, is leaving the old ways behind through the power of Christ. Now, now what's the world's response when this happens? Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. If you think about July 4th and Independence Day and celebrating that over hot dogs and a nice drink or a hamburger, Think about it this way in that roman Greco-Roman world, in that culture, that July 4th would be these drinking parties and drunkenness and debauchery. And then when you don't join in on this kind of national holiday, oh, people will malign you, disparage you, try to bring your reputation down, some of us have experienced. That's one way the world responds. I think any Christian here we can relate to some of these experiences. Sometimes friendships are lost because you won't live in the same pattern as before. Sometimes this is in the workplace or in the public square. You are maligned for holding a biblical position because that doesn't fit their worldview or lifestyle. Some of you read the note sent out last week about our view of the Equality Act in Congress and before the Senate now. If we hold a biblical position, in boldness, oh, most of the world will malign you and say, this is not right, and we don't want anything to do with you. This is the cost of discipleship in following Jesus, Peter says. But friends, as a way of application, when we talk like the world, when we act like the world, and when we walk like the world, we would never be maligned for that because there is nothing to be offended by since we have simply blended in. And sadly, perhaps the American church, and many churches across the nations, perhaps we have blended in more than we can recognize. But when we forget what lies behind, when we forsake the old ways, oh, we should expect to be persecuted, suffer for doing good, ostracized and maligned. This is part of the arming yourself with the mind of Christ and in regards to suffering for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of living in this new way. So again, gospel-centered living involves people who are armed with right thinking, people who adhere to the one true goal, people who lead the old ways behind. And finally, for verse 5 through 6, people who treasure the preached gospel of Christ people who treasure the preached gospel of Christ. Let me read verse five and six again. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Peter encourages us that those that persecute you and cause you to suffer for living for the gospel and doing good, oh, they will have their day of judgment coming to them. And unless they repent and believe, they will suffer for all eternity in hell. That's why we have a missional mindset here at Westminster. We need to go out into the streets, into the communities to say that day is coming. Nothing is going to stop that day of judgment. Repent and believe. Listen to my sharing of good news, not bad news, but good news to save you from the coming judgment. Peter is referring to those opposed to the gospel who are alive physically or have physically died. Their judgment will come nonetheless someday. And that helps us with the context of verse 6, that Peter is talking about hope for those that are physically living and hearing the gospel preached to them, but also to those that have physically died already, but had heard and believed the good news before their deaths. Verse 6 says, for this is why the gospel was preached. It's not saying is being preached to those who have already died. This is not about a post-mortem or post-death type of gospel ministry. But to those that were alive and then have since gone to the Lord, oh, they have this confidence on that day of judgment, being united to Christ. That's why that word there in verse 6, preach good news, is Galitzo. It's a different word than last week. Remember that weird text or that difficult text about Christ proclaiming. It's a different Greek word. Proclaiming to the evil spirits that opposed and rebelled against God. Oh, that's Christ declaring to these evil spirits his victory and vindication over death, conquering sin and Satan. So now the Greek word is euangelizo, preaching good news to ourselves, to those who are living here in this space and to ourselves, but also that have heard. I'm new here, I've only been here six months, but you have sat next to those that have gone to the Lord over the many 60 years here in the history of Westminster, to find comfort, to know that they sat and listened and read about the gospel of Jesus Christ and they believed this is what Peter is talking about, that they have the security in heaven because the gospel was preached to them. During suffering in this life for living for Christ and the gospel, and even being maligned for our faith, gospel-centered living includes treasuring the preached gospel every day, not just taking it for granted here on the Lord's Day every week, week in and week out, but every day, And of course, we borrow this refrain from the Puritans. Preach the gospel to oneself every day was their valid refrain. Because we need to treasure good news and be reminded of the living hope we have again in order to suffer well till we see Jesus face to face. This is the the context of what Peter is encouraging and exhorting the people of God. Back to John Newton then as we wrap up. What a radical conversion, if you read his stories, his story. and a couple of decades of gospel-centered ministry and living, he knew firsthand the difference between living for yourself and living for the will of God. He knew there is a stark difference between the old man and the new man, even though we are not yet perfect here on earth. He tasted that the Lord is good. He knew intimately what the sufficiency of grace entailed. And so he was able to write the famous quote that I referenced many months ago in the fall. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Words inspired by the very words of Apostle Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Friends, as sojourners and exiles, as those that suffer and are maligned for doing what is good, and that time of tangible suffering might be closer than we realize in our nation, as those that are found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, as those that embrace gospel-centered daily living. Oh, brothers and sisters, live for the will of God by his power. Let that be your one true goal. And for all of this, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for good news. Thank you for a new life. Thank you for transformed pursuits and godly affections. Only you could do that in us. And while we still struggle, while we battle fear and anxiety and the spiritual depression of battling besetting sins, help us not to lose sight of the glorious riches found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And although we might not see all the growth we might hope for, help us to be grateful for all the ways we have already changed by the grace of God. As we are your redeemed people, we pray this in in the merciful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.